Welcome to Weekend Warriors, the foreign affairs podcast that asks, what else is happening in the world? I'm Essie Cup. I think what isn't happening in the world might be a better question this week because there's a lot going on. Um, let's start with Robert Mueller and his statement summing up the Russia investigation on Wednesday. Now, his assertions about whether the president committed a crime are making all the headlines. But what about the way he finished his speech saying, quote, I will close by reiterating the central allegation of our indictments that there were multiple systematic efforts to interfere in our election. That allegation deserves the attention of every American, end quote. Now, that was followed Thursday morning by Trump glibly tweeting and then retracting Russia helped him get elected. Whoops. Okay, then there's North Korea and emboldened Kim Jong-un this month has fired off short range missiles the country's first missile test since 2017. Over in the Middle East, the White House Wednesday announced a new defense cooperation agreement with the UAE. This comes after the administration circumvented Congress in order to expedite arms sales to Saudi Arabia and the UAE, to the protest of Democrats and Republicans, by the way. And of course, there are ongoing tensions with Iran, an escalating trade war with China, political chaos in Europe stemming from Brexit, Venezuela's deteriorating situation, continued shelling in Syria. It is safe to say President Trump has a full plate of foreign policy challenges to deal with. Now, this should prick up the ears of 2020 Democratic candidates. There are looming global conflicts and hotspots all over the place, and the next president We'll have to be ready for them. My next guest is a 2020 Democratic candidate for president, and he is running as a national security candidate, putting foreign policy front and center. Joining me now is Democratic Congressman from Massachusetts and Iraq War veteran Seth Moulton. Welcome to Weekend Warriors. Thanks, SC. It's great to be here. Well, so let's start broad and then zero in. Um, you know, I had you on my show, SC Cup Unfiltered. We talked about why you're running as a foreign policy national security candidate. Um, I want to zero in on some of those foreign affairs issues, but let me just start here. We've got a lot of domestic concerns, um, healthcare policy, uh, trade. I like to make the argument that foreign policy is domestic policy because so many of these issues abroad have domestic implications, economic, national security, et cetera. Why do you think, though, that there's a, a lane for someone like you who's really, really focused on those issues in particular? Well, first of all, in this race, the number one concern I hear from Democrats across the country is they want to beat Trump. And this is where Trump is weakest. So we have to take him on, not just as president, but as commander in chief. I don't know why I'm the only one in the race doing it, but that's what I'm doing. And it's making a difference because he is a weak commander in chief. And I also think that he's going to be harder to beat than many people think. Mm. Having said that, I see, I also agree with your point that so many of these national security issues affect us right here at home. Immigration is a national security issue. We're talking about it every single day. Uh, economic security from China. That's a major national security issue. It's a problem that this president has allocated more money for his silly border wall in the South than cybersecurity protection for the entire country. When China is stealing our ideas and our military secrets through the internet every, every single day, that's where a lot of jobs are going. So national security matters here at home. And look, it's not the only thing I'm talking about in this race. I have a very bold position on healthcare as the only candidate in this mm -hmm. race 
who actually get single-payer health care because I go to the VA. But national security should be front and center in this campaign because it's the best way to take on Donald Trump. I'm wondering what you think about... Well, to be frank, about us, journalists, the media, and how we cover those issues. I, you know, if I think back, debates haven't happened yet, and I, I, I hope you, you, you are, are there for them, but I think back on past presidential election debates, and foreign policy questions come up almost in sort of a gotcha uh, way. You know, would you have gone into Iraq, or can you defend your position, uh, you know, supporting the Iraq war. I don't know that we ask really timely, good questions about how these candidates would approach real foreign policy issues. What's your take on that? I think you're right. I don't think we talk about it at all. I think in the 2016 Republican debate, the war in Afghanistan, the longest war in American history that's Mm -hmm. still going on today, never even came up once. So, of course, we should be talking about mm-hmm. these issues. There are national security issues that affect us here at home, just like we discussed. There are also issues where American lives are on the line every single yeah. day. And a key part of the job of being president of the United States is being commander in chief. And that's why it's so dangerous to have someone like Donald Trump in that role, making these decisions about a putting American lives on the, on the line uh, when he did everything he could to get out of serving himself. Do you think that the next president of the United States should have to have served? I don't think it should be an absolute litmus test, Uh, but I may be the only candidate in this race who's actually had to make life or death decisions. And I think that's important experience when you take on this job, this tremendous responsibility uh, as commander in chief of the United States. Do you think you know, Pete Buttigieg, who has also served, and Tulsi Gabbard has also served. Do you think um, they're, they're, they're as, as well-positioned as you are, given their service? Well, I have great admiration for, for both of them and, and for their service, but I think people should understand that my experience is a little bit different. Uh, I was on the ground in combat over four tours in Iraq, and when you boil it down, my fundamental responsibility was to get an incredibly diverse group of Americans in the infantry platoons that I led and the teams that I led united behind a common mission to serve our country. And these were very diverse groups. I mean, people from all over the country with different backgrounds, different religious beliefs, different political beliefs, uh, some people who agreed with the war, some of us who didn't. But mm. we all had to come together to do the right thing for the country. And that's exactly the kind of leadership I think we need from the next president of the United States during what is certainly the most divisive time I have seen in my lifetime in America. So let's talk about Russia. Um, Just this morning, Trump repeated his claim that nobody's been tougher on Russia than him. Now, (laughs) look, look, he's been tough on Russia. He's expelled diplomats. He's issued sanctions. We've actually beat Russians on the battlefield under this administration, but I know you think he's also had some significant failures in holding Russia accountable. I want you to explain what you think those are. I mean, the list just goes on and on, but the fact that he uh, cozies up to uh, Putin, um, considers him a friend, refuses to let our own intelligence services uh, listen in on on their discussions. I mean, that's never happened uh, before. And and he is complete and he is repeatedly uh, denied the most important conclusion of the Mueller report and the same conclusion held by every intelligence agency in the United States, which is that Russia interfered in our election to help Mm -hmm. him get elected. And I don't care whether you're the biggest Trump supporter or the biggest Trump hater. 
every American should want to know why the greatest enemy of the United States for the last 70 years, the only country that could wipe us all out in 20 minutes with their nuclear arsenal, why they wanted so badly for Donald Trump to be our president. So, I mean, what would you do to take on Russia? Your elected president, President Seth Moulton, does what in the first 100 days to hold Russia accountable? Number one, we need to stop their interference in our elections because they're fundamentally trying to undermine our democracy. And they're not just doing it to us. They're doing it to Democratic allies around the globe, particularly in Europe. So we Mm -hmm. actually have to pass the bills that have been proposed uh, in the Senate and unsupported by the the president in the Senate and the House uh, to secure our elections from uh, from Russian hacking. We need to invest in those types of defenses in Europe. Uh, We're no longer as worried about Russia rolling tanks, you know, through the Fulda Gap into Eastern Europe. But they are literally attacking us through the Internet, attacking us and our NATO allies on a daily basis. So it's time to rethink our NATO alliance in terms of this new threat. Uh, NATO is still resting on a 1949 framework where obviously Mm -hmm. we didn't envision cyber attacks. We've got to modernize NATO and make it clear to the Russians that we take these attacks seriously and we will stand together in defeating them. I also think it's time for us to lead a new generation of thinking when it comes to arms control. And we would all benefit. Frankly, Russia would benefit too, even, if we reduced our nuclear arsenal. That's something that we should pursue. It's another thing that the, uh, the president has stalled on. But most of all, it comes down to this. Our motto as the United States of America should be the same motto that, that, that I had as a member of the 1st Marine Division which was no better friend, no worse enemy. Our friends, our allies, particularly our NATO allies, they need to know that they can trust us. Mm -hmm. And our enemies need to know that they can trust our resolve. Mm -hmm. It is very clear to me that our allies do not trust us right now. They've told me this as I've traveled the, uh, the world as a member of the House Armed Services Committee. It's also clear that our enemies don't trust our resolve because Putin knows that, uh, that Trump will often do his bidding. And that's a frightening thing for any American. Well, you said, you know, we're not worried about Russia rolling tanks. I think that's largely true. But, I mean, they are sort of out teching us on the battlefield. There's, they, have, they have technology to jam our, our communications ops on the battlefield. They've used it before. I have sources inside the military who say that they're conducting training exercises using flags uh, to try and communicate if and when these attacks on our comms do happen. Do we need to be investing more in new technologies in our, in our military to combat Russia and, and maybe other developing, um, developing nation states? Absolutely. And that's a cornerstone of my strategy. Uh, I've talked about three things, a totally new generation of thinking when it comes to arms, when it comes to arms control, and when it comes to alliances. Now, I just talked about the third part, about modernizing NATO, mm-hmm. but it also means that our defenses have to be modernized as well. And you've given us some good examples, but here's the other part of that. The hard part, really, is not just buying the new equipment, but getting rid of some of the old, expensive legacy weapon systems uh, that are eating up all our budget and preventing us from investing in these new technologies. I think that in some ways, Russia and China actually have an almost inherent advantage over us because their defense budgets are more constrained. They know that they're not going to match us by just building as many aircraft carriers as we have. They don't have Mm -hmm. the hundreds of billions of dollars to do that. So what do they do? 
They just focus on ways to defeat our aircraft carriers. And it turns out that you can buy over 1,200 anti-carrier missiles for the same price as one aircraft carrier. So we need to do some hard thinking about how we meet this totally new generation of threats, investing in things like artificial intelligence and cyber, investing in space weapons, which China has done especially, Russia as well. But it also means we need to make some hard choices about where we can make defense cuts to be more responsible um, with how we're spending our, our money. Hmm. Let's um, shift over to, to North Korea for a second. Um, whether it's on, on nukes or, or human rights, no one's really figured out North Korea uh, of all the you know previous administration attempts. How would you, what would you do uh, about North Korea? North Korea is tough, but what we absolutely should not be doing is brushing aside their uh, use of weapons, um, their development of nuclear yeah. weapons and their continued development of ballistic missiles. And of course, that's exactly what Trump is doing. I mean, he's completely downplaying their most recent missile tests and and saying that he trusts this despotic dictator. I mean, it's just unbelievable. Uh, So the first thing I would do is I would strengthen our alliance in the Pacific. Uh, I visited visited the Pacific uh, region and talked to many of our allies there as a member of the Armed Services Committee. And it's very clear that they do not trust the United States under Donald Trump. We need to rebuild that trust, but we need to go a step further. I've called for a Pacific version of NATO to help contain the rise of China and the nuclear threat from North Korea. And that means formalizing some of the informal alliances we have there. Uh, So, for example, uh, two of our closest allies in the Pacific are South Korea and Japan. But historically, South Korea and Japan haven't gotten along, and it's made formalizing that alliance more difficult. But we should, because we have common enemies in North Korea and China. And so we should provide the the leadership um, to make a Pacific version of NATO and make it clear to our enemies that we will be allied um, and united in in standing up to them. Mm. Um, I want to ask you about Syria. I think... You know, I've been, I've been, um, I talk a lot about that that crisis and have been for a while. Uh, the previous administration basically made the case that there were no good options. I think that's debatable. But a decade later, we've got half a million people are dead, fifty thousand of them children. There's American support for airstrikes, special ops, even safe zones. I'm wondering where Syria would figure into the constellation of your foreign policy if if you were elected president. The most important thing is that I know what it means to be on the ground, to be um, yeah. to be sent into combat. And the most important thing you need to have is a mission. You need to understand what you're doing and why you're doing it. Mm-hmm. And that's not clear to the troops in Syria today. I know because I've asked them. Uh, they might have the short-term task, like, hey, we've got to de- you know, defeat this ISIS group in um, a certain village. Uh, but there's no long-term plan. There's no, uh, there, there's no, uh, you know, uh, understanding of what comes next. Mm-hmm. You know, if you simply ask the question, okay, you defeat the ISIS in this village, but who's going to take over? Mm-hmm. What's the political plan? Uh, what's the next step? And fundamentally, what do you need to do? What do you need to achieve for you to be able to come home? So we've got to clarify our mission in Syria, and this is how I would do it. I don't think there's any good, or at least no obvious political option in Syria. We should mm-hmm. be energizing our State Department to be having uh, the international debates uh, that we need to have 
uh, to figure out what that longer-term political situation uh, will be. But in the short term, we know that we have allies there on the ground, that we've trained and they have supported us in battle. We completely undermine our credibility across the globe if we just abandon them. So Mm -hmm. in the immediate term, let's focus on those allies. Let's carve out a section of southeast Syria uh, that we will make it very clear uh, is a safe haven for those allies. And let's protect it and let's secure it and let's make it clear to our troops that once they do that, they can start coming home. So protect it with with, with boots on the ground, protect it with special ops, and what in what way? Well, what I'm saying is that we have troops in Syria right now doing a variety yeah. of missions. Mm-hmm. I want to make it clear what the outlines of a political settlement would be, at least on our terms. And the one thing that it must be clear to every American uh, is that we need to support our allies that have risked their lives for us. So let's carve out that section of the, of, of the country. If right. we can get Russia's agreement on it, fantastic. If we can't, then so be it. But let's make it clear that we will protect our allies there. We will build up their defenses so that they can eventually protect that part of their territory on their own. And then let's get out. So does that include a a no-fly zone? It probably includes a no-fly zone uh, that we might be able to to enforce. But Mm -hmm. It also includes just consolidating the, um, the, the, you know, the SDF, the Syrian Democratic Forces yeah. that we have worked with, and making it clear that this is, this is, this is where they're going to be. Yeah. Um, and we're not going to continue trying to take over the rest of Syria. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't think that anyone thinks that's realistic right now. Um, we'll make it clear to the Russians that they should stay out of this area and that, um, and that you know, we will, uh, we will you know, keep our uh, uh, attention focused on this area ourselves. Uh, but that's it. I, I don't think that mm-hmm. the previous visions of, you know, sweeping across Syria or starting some uh, insurgent movement to take over the entire country are, are realistic right now. And so yeah. we've got to get away from those and be clear what the mission is uh, to the troops on the ground. Well, final question. Of all of the sort of theaters of turmoil, Iran, China, Russia, Venezuela, Middle East, what do you think is the most pressing um, theater to, to, to the U.S. right now? What should we be paying the most attention to? What's our biggest threat? The longest term threat is China. The rise of China is a massive economic and national security threat to the United States. And we've got to be focused on that today uh, before they completely surpass us, um, both in technology uh, and in terms of economic might. So this involves everything from investing in artificial intelligence uh, to being serious about confronting the threat of 5G technology. Uh, There's a debate in the administration about that right now. The short-term threat, the immediate threat, is from Russia. Uh, They still have a nuclear arsenal that can wipe us out, and it is very clear that they are trying to undermine our democracy and having a great deal of success with the man that is in the Oval Office right now. So in the short term, we need to be squarely focused on that threat. And then, I hate to say it, Essie, but terrorism remains a massive threat around the globe. There are four times as many Sunni extremists in the world today as there were on 9-11. So while we're focused on these big power threats, um, from Russia and China, we also have to keep our eye on the ball with terrorism. And that requires a balancing that, act. Do you think the Democrats running get that, that, that terrorism is still a big problem? And we, we don't even know yet the next iteration of ISIS that's already sort of, you know, uh, forming somewhere, maybe in the Maghreb, maybe in the Sahel, who knows. But 
it's coming. Do you think though, that, that your com- competition in the field gets that? I have a lot of respect for the people I'm running against in this 2020 presidential primary, but I don't think anyone else is as focused on national security as we should be. And it doesn't mean that it's the only focus that I have. Um, I'm talking about all the issues, uh, other issues as well. Um, I've been talking a lot about health care just this past week, for example, especially mental health care. But we have to have a national security plan because the fundamental responsibility of the government and of the commander in chief is to keep Americans safe. And for too long, the Republican Party has tried to own these issues of what makes America strong and safe, uh, secure and even patriotic. And we can't let them take those issues, especially under such a reckless reckless commander in chief. So that's why I'm talking about a totally new generation of thinking when it comes to our arms, our arms control agreements, and also our alliances around the globe. We've got to meet a new generation of threats with a new generation of leaders. And that's why I think it's time for the generation that sent us to Iraq and Mm -hmm. Afghanistan to take over, to to seed the stage uh, for the generation that fought there. Well, I'm really glad you're talking about these issues, and I hope, you know, they continue to get traction because I think it's, um, you know, an overlooked part of our our presidential election conversation, but incredibly important. So I thank you for coming on Weekend Warriors. Absolutely, Essie, and thanks for doing this. Okay, take care. That's it for me. I'm Essie Cup. We'll talk to you next time on Weekend Warriors.